this morning, we're in chapter four. We're in the middle of a dialogue. If you recall, this is a divine appointment that Jesus has had with a Samaritan woman. We've been looking at it over, over the course of the last couple of weeks. We've been kind of setting the stage. What this is doing as we slow down and go through this, it just shows that what's said of Jesus in John chapter two is true. He knows all men. He knows what's in all men. Jesus gets right to her greatest need, just like he did with Nicodemus in chapter three, even though they're on opposite ends of the social spectrum, he goes right to their greatest need. And in this case, this lady's greatest need is eternal life. Last week, we started actually dissecting this dialogue. So just a quick review. This woman was a social outcast. And remember, we joked, right? Former baseball player, four strikes against her. That doesn't exist in baseball, but it exists here in the life of the woman. She was the wrong gender. She was a woman. And men, and especially Jewish rabbis, didn't have anything to do with women in public. She was the wrong race. She was a Samaritan. There was just outstanding hatred. We're going to learn more about that even this morning. And then we saw at the tail end of the message last week, she lived the wrong lifestyle, right? She'd been married five times. The man she was living to now wasn't her husband. She had had something going on in her life. Now, we don't know exactly why her five marriages ended, They could have ended, you know, her husband could have died, multiple could have died, but it's more than likely because of the shame she feels over this is that she was given a bill of divorcement. And we mentioned last week that's significant because women couldn't initiate divorce in that culture, only men could. So that is representative of the rejection that this woman was feeling, more reason to feel rejected. And then this morning, we're going to look more closely at this point, this fourth strike she holds to a wrong religion. And we'll kind of get into that as we get into our passage this morning. We saw Jesus continually uses this physical well, this impressive well. Some archaeologists have said it's 100 to 150 foot deep. It had a stream that fed it, so it never ran out of water. So it's an impressive physical well, but he keeps using that well as a visual aid to contrast who he is and what he was offering. Remember, he was offering living water. He was offering her water that she would never have to come draw at this well again. This is what she's thinking. He's offering her water that if she takes one drink of the offer of water that he's providing, what did he say? You'll never thirst again. Because it's a wellspring, as verse 14 says, that springs up into everlasting life. This is what Jesus is doing. And he's using this visual aid to contrast and to teach this lesson to her. Again, drinking here illustrates believing. We saw that. We went through that last week. Drinking here illustrates believing. Drinking, one drink of living water would satisfy any future thirst. Why is that? Because of what verse 14 says. But the water that I shall give him, he says, or let's go back to the beginning of verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The idea is that this water will never go dry. The water that Jesus was offering, and he's using this, uh, you know, illustratively to, to describe eternal life and believing on him for eternal life. And this is what he has been talking about here. Now, she doesn't get this. She, she is still locked in horizontally. She's still locked in visibly. She's still locked in uh, externally. And so this is why, in fact, you can see that in verse 15. She's like, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So she's still tying it to the well. She said, I kind of like that. This dragging this water pot thing up this hill, filling it, taking it back home is for the birds. <laughs> like, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming drawn here. So she's, she missed the point. And so Jesus, knowing this, he switches tactics on her. He, right in the middle of the conversation, you remember he switches tactics and he says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And we talked about that last week because one of the things that's significant about this is he's going to use his omniscience here about this woman's personal life. And it's that kind of omniscience that convinces her ultimately or begins to allow her to consider who this man is and what he's offering. The fact that he could legitimately offer what he's saying he'd offer. In other words, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe, just maybe. She's not convinced yet. You're going to see as the conversation goes on. But remember, culturally, it was very inappropriate for a man to offer a woman anything without her husband present. Because there was lots of misunderstandings that could arise there. And again, 
Uh, I'll just leave that to the adult mind. You can figure that out. We've got kids here, so I won't describe all that. But there's this idea that if a man gave a woman a gift, then there was something inappropriate that he was expecting in return. And so this is a very appropriate way. If he's going to give her a gift, she says, give it to me. He's like, go call your husband. And that just opens up another can of worms for her because now she realizes that he knows something about her. In fact, he's probably... She's probably like, what else does this guy know about me? It's a little maybe disconcerting because he knows some, some details here. And so what's really fascinating about what she says in verse 19 is she says, and, and it just kind of goes under our radar, but again, putting it back into cultural time frame, what a Samaritan would be thinking, the woman said to him in verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Very significant because for a Samaritan, this enters the realm of what we would call messianic speculation. In other words, they only took the first five books of the Old Testament as canonical, as God's word. And so the only prophet they recognized was Moses and the one that Moses said would come. And the one that Moses said would come, they thought was the Messiah. They connected the Messiah to that prophet. We pulled this up last week, but Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18, this is what she is, is kind of entering this realm of speculation. She says, the Lord your God, or Deuteronomy 18 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. She's basically wondering, is this one the Messiah? Because he told her, she had five husbands. Like we joked last week, he probably could have named them, right? And the one she's living with now is not her husband. She's like, wow, could this be a Messiah? Now, really fascinating because in the same breath in verse 20, you're going to see she takes this abrupt right turn in the conversation because Jesus, the entire conversation, I believe he is driving her to a decision. And she's like many of us. We don't like to be driven to a decision. We like to put it off. We like to kick the can down the road. We don't like that kind of pressure. Well, Jesus is just creatively and craftily just driving her to a decision. She doesn't like it, so she changes tactics. And what she does is she shifts to a long-standing lightning rod of a debate between Jews and Samaritans, and it all centers on where you worship. This would be the equivalent uh, in our culture, lightning rod issues. Can you think of any? You're trying to change a subject with some, getting a little uncomfortable standing next to the person at the, you know, the grocery line. You're like, oh yeah, what do you think about January 6th? You know? What do you think about Donald Trump? Whoa, <laughs> lightning rod, right? What do you think about COVID, mass man? I mean, we have those lightning rod issues in our culture. She goes to a lightning rod issue. And this is what she says in verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And this is a lightning rod issue in this day. This would distract even the most focused rabbi, the most focused Samaritan, and this would cause an incredible argument. They would argue about where they were supposed to worship. They had different views on that. And so she is trying to get the focus off of herself and onto some theological debate is what she's trying to do here. Now, before we go further, I just got to say this. I want you to see this in your Bible. The word worship is going to be used 10 times in the next five verses between verse 20 and verse 24. And the word worship, when you translate it literally, it's odd. You know, I, this is one of those, I went to the lexicon, I was like, am I looking up the right word? Like, this, this is weird, you know, I'm thinking. But then it starts to make sense. And, and the word literally means to kiss towards somebody, to blow a kiss or to throw a kiss in respect or homage, right? You're, you're showing respect by throwing a kiss to somebody. And we're like, that just still doesn't compute with our culture. But in this culture, it made sense. Now, I'm going to gross some of the young people out, older adult people, you're more mature, you can handle this. But when people who were of equal status would greet each other in the street, they would kiss each other on the lips, Okay, no one gross got gross out there, all right? So that was just a normal greeting 
of people when you were of equal status. If there was a slightly different status, there was a recognized cultural or hierarchical status, you would greet them by kissing them on the cheek. Okay? And that's the one we're familiar with. That's still very common even overseas. But if you were greeting someone with a very different status, the king, you know, the president, the owner of the company, you know, someone that's, that's a, this, there's a great distinction in status, you would fall to your knees, you would put your forehead on the ground, and you would throw kisses to them. You wouldn't kiss their face, you wouldn't kiss their lips, you would throw kisses to them. That's worship, and that's the image of worship that we have in the Bible, especially as it relates to God. In fact, when people are confronted by God throughout the Bible, what do they typically, how do they typically respond? They fall down. They fall on their knees. They put their face to the ground. That's interesting. The, the worship here, sometimes it can, it can have the idea that you put your forehead on the ground. You touch the ground with your forehead. It's it just shows that, you know, as dumb as this sounds, but it's like we need to be reminded, God is God and you are not. God is God, I am not. We, and when we approach in the presence of God, it's not going to be like sitting down with the buddy. And I, and I know Jesus loves us and we are going to have great fellowship with Jesus. But I imagine in that moment when we see him face to face, he's going to have to lift up all of us off the ground. Because that's how we're going to naturally respond. That's worship. This is what we're talking about in this passage. And so already you're looking at that verse and you're like, why is she making a mountain out of a molehill? Right? She's literally making a mountain out of a molehill. Something that's not important, she's making it important when it is about a person. It is about a person. We'll see that as we bear ourselves out. She says, we, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She's pointing to Mount Gerizim in the area of Samaria. And this is exactly where they believe true worship happened was on this mountain. Notice she didn't say we worshiped at this temple on Mount Gerizim. You know why? Because a Jewish leader had destroyed their temple in 128 BC. Also inciting the hatred between these two groups. So they no longer had a temple, but they still went up into the mountain in worship. They didn't even recognize the Jewish temple as legit. As impressive as it was, they wouldn't even go here. In fact, there's a story about a, a Jewish priest or a Jewish rabbi walking through Samaria, hungry, tired, but he's pushing through because he wants to get to the temple so that he can pray. And he got into a conversation with a Samaritan woman. She said, where are you heading? He said, I'm, I'm heading straight through to Jerusalem so that I can pray. I'm not going to pray until I get there. And she says, why wouldn't you just go pray on this mountain instead of on that dunghill? That's how she referred to the temple and Jerusalem as a dunghill. And that's a true story. That's a historical story. So this is how they felt about this. So clearly it's a lightning rod issue she brings up, this, this location. Now, how you go from having five husbands and living with a guy to this, you, you can see this was like an abrupt, woo, right turn. I mean, she is really trying to push this off of her lap. It's not a very connected leap. In fact, she, she's throwing out what we call an intellectual red herring, right? She's just trying to detract and defray the conversation to a different place. She's taking the focus off of what's going on. Again, maybe she could get Jesus to just stop honing in on her and focus on theology, and then the conversation can end. I think that's what she's probably thinking at this point. And by the way, as a side comment, religion and religious thinking always does this, always gets hung up on the minors, always gets hung up on the external, the measurables, the observables, the rituals, the the actions, the, the hands and the feet. We, religion always gets hung up on that, always gets hung up on that. And you can see that here, she's gonna get hung up on that. Now, when God does use physical, measurable, external, observable things, they are designed to point to a spiritual reality, not to distract us from the spiritual reality. And this is exactly what externals oftentimes do in religious thinking. And so we'll see. She's kind of hung up on the externals. Jesus is going to address that. And because the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, they didn't agree with what was clearly revealed later. They had rejected progressive revelation. They had only received what was revealed in Deuteronomy. And you know, by the way, if 
all they had was up to Deuteronomy, they actually had a good argument for why worship should be on Mount Gerizim. In fact, consider the general promise in Deuteronomy 12, 5. It says, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. You see, the, the Jewish worship in the temple in Jerusalem was not revealed until the time of David and Solomon. We don't, we don't typically think of that, but it was much later, much after Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 12.5, they're looking for a place. They just don't have it revealed. But notice what Deuteronomy 11 says in 29 and 30. And you can see why the Samaritans might be confused. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and curse and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moray? And so you can see why they might have been confused. In fact, if you want to jot something else down in your note, jot, jot down Deuteronomy 27, 12. It's a very similar passage to this, naming Mount Gerizim as a place of blessing. So you can see why they're distracted. You can see why there's a debate. In fact, how many theological debates do we have going around in our world today? Do you know that the person that disagrees with you that, on that is not stupid? Just saying. <laughs> They generally have a reason for believing what they do. Generally, people don't pull things out of thin air. There's a reason the debate has been going on for years. There's a reason because, and there's a reason here. You can see it. They're holding tenaciously to Deuteronomy, but they're rejecting anything after it that gives more clarity. But you can see why they believed what they believe. In fact, we know from history that uh, Samaritans also believe that Abraham sacrificed Isaac on Mount Gerizim. They believe that Abraham met Melchizedek on Mount Gerizim. In fact, almost every significant event in the lives of the patriarch, they believed happened on Mount Gerizim. So you can see why religiously they're like, this is the special mountain. And so you can see why this is a huge debate. And so again, when did it originate it or when did this idea start gaining steam? Most likely when the Samaritans were populated by the Assyrian captors and then when the Jewish exiles were released from Babylon or Medo-Persian Empire. They began to rebuild the city. They were beginning to rebuild the walls. They began to rebuild the temple, lay the foundation, and the Samaritans opposed them. Why did they oppose them? Well, one, they didn't want a, a, a rival group setting up nearby, but two, they thought the proper place to worship was Mount Gerizim. So they didn't want anything in Jerusalem. And you kind of see this develop behind, behind the scenes here. And so it just became one more thing for them to disagree about. Okay, so you can see why she pushes that out to Jesus to try to distract him, get him off of this, hey, five husbands, one you're living with. Okay, what else does this guy know? Let's, let's get him debating theology because I don't want to make it. So he's pushing to her to a decision. And so Jesus is going to respond to her. And I love the way Jesus responds because he doesn't go through and break down why they should receive the canon after Deuteronomy. He doesn't go through and break down all the places after Deuteronomy that specifically named Jerusalem as the right hill. He doesn't take the bait, in other words. We do that sometimes in conversations, don't we? People throw out a red herring to us, and we take the bait. We just jump to this, this ancillary issue way over here when the true issue is they need the gospel, right? They need to hear that, that God loved them, that God died for them, that if without trusting in Christ, they're going to face the justice of God, and we don't want them to face it. And then we're over here debating about whether dinosaurs are found in the Bible. And you're like, why do we do that? So we can take a lesson out of Jesus's playbook here. Um, I like what he says here in verse 21. He says, woman, and I read that wrong because it's not really an, an obnoxious thing. He's just saying, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And, and again, I pointed it out before, but we're going to see worship 10 times in these verses. One of the things that you're going to see Jesus do in this dialogue, and he's going to do it subtly. We can pick up, uh, pick up some principles here that will be very important to just kind of see. He's going to take this woman to the true heart of worship. And many of us need a rethink in that area anyways. This has been extremely challenging to my thinking, just studying through this passage in terms of the cultural things that slip into our mind that passes for worship, and he is just going to clear up what's true worship. And he's going to say it's not about external rituals. It's not about geographic locations. It's not about religious history. 
It's not a certain system. It's not a certain set of circumstances that you need to worship. It's not a certain feeling or emotions. And by the way, and this may blow our mind, it's not directly connected to music. That is a shocker to me. We do. We oftentimes think, well, and we have this false dichotomy in churches that, that don't help us very much because we come on a Sunday morning and we say, oh, did you, oh, I got, you know, did you go to church? Yeah, but I got there late. I got there midway through the worship time. And we all know, what do they mean? Midway through the singing. They got there midway through the singing. And it's like, when Josh steps down, okay, worship's over. Now we're just going to read, you know, study the Bible. And what we're going to see is the goal of everything we do is worship. We're going to see that worship is centered in spirit, which is an internal response and truth. That can happen when the music's going. That can happen when the Bible's being taught. That can happen in the fellowship that happens afterwards or before the church. It can happen in your car outside of the driveway on the way home. It can happen while you're standing in line at Nukes to place your order. Okay? It's just a rethink in terms of worship. And, and, and it's just, we just need a rethink oftentimes. And, and here's the thing, because if we tie worship to a thing, then that thing will become what we worship. It's crazy that way. And then we had an emotional experience during singing, and then we are seeking that emotional experience from that point forward as worship. And that's not worship. Now, do our emotions involved in worship? Sometimes. Are they always involved in worship? No, I would say no. They can be. It's not that music is bad. It's not that Bible teaching is bad. Not, the point is, is we need to think outside the box a little bit and stop narrowing it down to when a, a guitar is being strummed or a piano is being played. That's in and of itself is not worship. And the reason for that is this, and this is where Jesus is going to take us. Worship is personal because it's relating to a personal, real person. Worship is relational because it's relating to a real person. It's responding to a real person. And so we don't want to get distracted by all the things that we subtly get distracted by saying we need that to worship. And so as we go forward, he says, believe me, trust me. Along with every other religious Jew, as I said before, in religious Samaritan, they're making a mountain out of a molehill. They're getting distracted by geography. And he says, the hour's coming. And he's going to tell us later in verse 23 that the hour now is. There's something incredible happening in the present conversation at the present time and God's overall history that this woman's going to be a part of. And what what he's talking about there is the very presence of the long-awaited Messiah, which we'll get to at the end of the conversation. And I believe when he talks about his hour in John, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. That's the hour. And when all of that happens, guess what? It's not going to matter geographically where you worship. God had set up a very large external visual aid for the world during the time of the Jews. It was located in the temple. It involved animal sacrifices. It involved blessings for obedience. And all of the nations were designed to be drawn to Israel. They were a megaphone to the nations. That's what it was designed to do. External, certain place. But when Jesus became the fulfillment of that law. Whereas all of the animal sacrifices covered sin, Jesus, the Lamb of God, John 1, took away sin. A, a, a new system, if you will, of worship was set up that no longer required geographic proximity. Now, why is that? Well, we learn in progressive revelation that the church uh, herself is referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit, that each individual believer is referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's no geographical boundaries in the worship that Jesus is talking about right here. And again, in verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and now is. God is making a transition here to a, to a new type of worship in the sense that there's not a geographical area to go to. Now, new in that sense, but not new. It wasn't like God just accepted any kind of worship before. He's always wanted to be worshiped in a certain way regardless of the time frame on earth. We're going to see that as we get further in this passage. Now, Jesus switches to plural here. Now, he's, he's addressing the issues between Samaritans and Jews. And so he says, you, when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, 
worship the Father. You, again, he's talking about all the Samaritans. And so we see that he blatantly steers away, really, from this debate on theology. Technically, the Jews were right because they had further revelation where God had revealed the location as Jerusalem. But it wasn't the issue to get hung up on. Why was it not the issue to get hung up on? Because it's getting ready to change. So why would we debate it when, it's, when God is doing something new here? And this is what Jesus is going to talk about. And now he is going to hone on some, home in on some things that the Samaritans have wrong. We're going to see that here. And it's going to lead him to his eventual punchline of who he is and why he is the one that can offer living water. And one of the things he's going to say, and it sounds kind of harsh, but in verse 22, he's going to say, uh, you worship what you don't know. The idea is not that you're stupid, but that you're ignorant. Now, sometimes in the South, we have trouble distinguishing those two words because we'll use them synonymously. You know, someone's d- doing something dying or just, man, you're just plain ignorant. Man, you're just an ignorant person, you know, and we really mean they're, they're stupid. Ignorant by definition means what? They don't possess information. That's what this group is. They were, they were ignorant uh, and ignorantly worshiping. Why? Because they lacked revelation. Willingly, they had chosen to lack revelation. They had chosen not to receive the rest of the Old Testament. So this is why Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We, in contrast, the Jews know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. He says, right now, you're worshiping, present tense, all of you Samaritans are worshiping something that you don't know. In fact, he tells them they don't even know what they're worshiping. They're in total ignorance. And it's really interesting because he shifts verb tense here. He says, you, don't, you worship what you don't know, which you haven't known in the past, and you remain in ignorance in the future. Now, there was a point in time in the past that they lacked this knowledge or they, they didn't come into this knowledge. When was it? I believe it was the day that they rejected the revelation of the Old Testament. That day, they made a decision. The first five books are the Word of God. Everything else in the Old Testament, the other 34, are worthless. We're going to stick with the first five. On that day, they became ignorant, and they've remained ignorant. And do you know that there are still people to this day that worship up on Mount Gerizim that come from this group of people? So it's still true today. They remain ignorant. And this is what Jesus is saying. They willingly missed out on much of God's revelation by choice. They chose to do this. And so this woman was a part of that group. She's ignorantly worshiping. In fact, Jesus would say, you know, this doesn't even have to be a debate if you guys will just turn the page to the other 34 books of the Old Testament. Bates over. This lightning rod of an issue isn't a lightning rod of an issue. This is a real simple situation. But due to their rejection of revelation, it wasn't. It became this big uh, terrible debate. But Jews, he says, worship what they know. He uses the same word, perfect tense, at a point in time in the past, we gain this knowledge, we remain possessing this knowledge. Doesn't mean that every Jew believed it perfectly. I mean, we've already seen some of the Jewish people reject Jesus. So clearly they're not all holding to this, but they have the revelation. They have the ability to know these things. And one of the things that the Samaritans missed was this progressive revelation that salvation was revealed and promised to Abraham, that it was preached by the Old Testament prophets, that it was explained in the Jewish scriptures. They missed all of those things. The Jews had it. What they specifically did not know or what the the Jews specifically did know is mentioned here in verse 22, and it's that salvation is of the Jews. This is what the Samaritans missed. This is why when Jesus is offering living water, she doesn't even make the connection that she should be looking for living water. She's not even expecting this concept of salvation. She's not even thinking that way. In fact, when you look at history, Samaritans began to view the Messiah as just simply a good teacher. This is somebody God's going to send us to give us more information. It's, it's kind of, and you can see why they would read it that way in Deuteronomy 18. It reflects one aspect of what the Messiah would did, but they were not looking for the Savior. So they, they missed it. They missed that entire point. In fact, they believed in a coming Messiah, as we're going to see in verse 25. She's like, hey, when Messiah comes, he'll clear this all up. Because why? Because he's a good teacher. You ever heard anybody say that about Jesus in our day? I mean, this is, error just trickles down through the centuries. People view Jesus as a good teacher. This is kind of what the Samaritans thought. But there are some things that they missed from Old Testament revelation because they rejected the last 34 books of the Old Testament. A couple of those examples in terms of the Messiah, they didn't know where the Messiah was to be born. 
because they didn't take Micah 5.2 as part of their scriptures. They didn't know the specific family line of the human lineage of the Messiah. They, they knew from Genesis 49, he would be of the tribe of Judah, but that God narrowed it down even further for them in progressive revelation said it was going to come through the line of King David. They didn't know the time frame of his entrance into this world, right? Uh, Daniel 9 describes the Messiah coming before the destruction of the, the second temple, right? That he would come, that he would be cut off. So they could have done that time frame from that decree by Artaxerxes. They didn't know that because Daniel 9 was not included in their Bible. And they, ob- they obviously didn't know this, this extra detail of the work that Jesus Christ would accomplish, meaning his death and resurrection. Isaiah 53, not in their Bible. Psalm 16 about the resurrection, not in their Bible, okay? The entire book of Isaiah, not in their Bible, right? The entire book of Zechariah, not in their Bible. All these things that pointed forward to this Messiah where they could have gained additional knowledge and understood that salvation was a Jew now, or was out of the Jews. Now, why were they hung up on Mount Gerizim? Again, because it was mentioned in Deuteronomy. They weren't engaged with progressive revelation. And so this is why they largely missed the Messiah. They largely missed this concept of salvation. Even though Genesis 3.15 says what? That God would send a promise delivered to crush the serpent's head. So they should have had some kind of concept, but they, by this time they didn't. And again, when you reject revelation, oftentimes you get dumb. I mean, you just get dumb because the ignorance does lead to stupidity in terms of positions that we hold. And so we don't want to reject the Bible. We want to receive the entire counsel of the word of God. And so in contrast um, to the past, we'll, we'll see that uh, they had missed this point that salvation was of or out of the Jews. That's that Greek preposition, ek. And this was the human lineage, the origin, more details on what he would accomplish. They had missed all of that. This is what Jesus is saying. And so in contrast to that, what they've missed, Jesus now reveals the plan going forward. And he's going to say in verses 23 and 24, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this, again, Jesus is driving her to response, right? He said, it's now, right? Right now. The time is coming, and, it's, and it is now where God's looking for those to worship him in spirit and truth. You can see he's pushing her toward a decision. And so it's very critical to see this verse. There, there's a transition happening here. There's a transition moving into, although obviously he's far from revealing more details on this, but there's a transition where he's moving into the church age. And what happened when Jesus died? What was one of the amazing things that happened that day to the temple during the earthquake? The veil was torn in two. And not from bottom to top where a man could do it, but from top to bottom, indicating what? Now there's full access available to God. You don't have to go through a mediatorial system. Why? Because your mediator not only mediated on your behalf, but then he rose from the dead and he remains alive. And so that access remains unfettered. And this is where the climactic fulfillment of what Jesus has accomplished, he's kind of alluding to it here. He's, he's giving her an insight. In fact, we're going to get to John 4.26 here in a second, where Jesus tells her directly, I am the Messiah. I, I don't even think he's told his disciples this yet. It's pretty fascinating, the truth that she's getting revealed to her directly, even prior to his own disciples. It's just, it's just fascinating to, to see the time frame and all that. Again, the hour mentioned is, is simply his ultimate purpose and reason for being here is finished work on the cross. That's what he seems to refer to as his hour. And we've looked at that a couple of times in the book of John already, already back in 2.4, and then just kind of looking ahead to how he uses this phrase elsewhere. And as I mentioned before, the finished work of Jesus Christ is what provides this un limited and unfettered access to to worship the Father for anyone who puts their faith in his dear Son. Because Jesus Christ is God's solution for the sin problem. I mean, we talk about that a lot. We've got to understand it because this is so, uh, I think, I mean, this is the heart of the issue here, right? This is the heart of the issue. Religion, religious thinking can't grasp this concept because God's solution for sin's penalty takes care of sin's penalty. Sin's penalty 
is death, according to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. God's solution takes care of sin's penalty. And this is where religion starts to just jumble things because people will say, you got to turn from your sin. How does turning from sin take care of sin's penalty? How does behavior pay the death penalty? If you're sitting there, scratch your head. Yeah, it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't pay the death penalty. Christ paid the death penalty. This is why when people say, you've got to pray a prayer to get saved. Does praying a prayer pay the death penalty? Or did Christ pay the death penalty? See, we're trusting in Jesus Christ who paid our death penalty for us. This is God's solution. This is the hour is here. The solution has been given. This is what Jesus is describing about. Walking an aisle doesn't pay the sin's penalty. Jesus Christ pays sin, sin's penalty. Giving your heart, giving your life to Christ, asking Jesus to come into your heart, doesn't pay sin's penalty. Christ paid sin's penalty. And this is why the Bible wants us to trust, not do anything, but to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not do anything ourselves to add to it, but to believe that what he did was enough, was done, because his death paid sin's penalty. In fact, it's not about giving your life to Christ. It's about Christ giving his life for you. It's the total opposite here because we're talking about sin's penalty, not behavior. We want to talk behavior. Let's talk about that after you're born into the family. Then we'll talk about behavior all you want. Behavior doesn't take care of sin's penalty. Anytime someone brings that up, whether it's for salvation or to maintain salvation, they are missing the point of what Jesus Christ accomplished for them. They're actually throwing their tip on the table to what Jesus Christ paid in full. And trust me, keep your pennies in your pockets because Jesus Christ paid it all. And we can trust him for salvation. And so this is what he's talking about. This is the decision that he's bringing her to. You've got to trust in Jesus Christ alone. There's a time of decision for her. It was in this conversation. For you, maybe it's this morning. Maybe it was years ago. We don't, we don't know. Maybe someone's listening online who's never trusted in Jesus Christ before. We want you to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He died for your sins and rose again. And we've got to understand that that is how God accepts anybody. And there's no other way to be accepted before a holy and just God than to trust in his solution for your sin's penalty. And that's why we emphasize, hopefully, clearly the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, we're gonna get into this section and he's gonna say true worshipers. And we're describing genuine and true worshipers, those who have a genuine reverence and a love for God. And notice how true worshipers worship. It's in spirit and in truth. Now, I don't want to get into too much Greek detail, but there is something interesting here that I just want you to mention because these look like two separate descriptions. And we could wax eloquent about spirit and we could wax eloquent about truth. But what's really fascinating in the Greek text is the word in there, that's preposition, it governs both the noun, spirit, and truth. And so what that tells us is that Jesus was describing one characteristics with, with two words. It's kind of giving us a perspective. On, on a true worshiper, but he's using two words to do it, not describing two different characteristics. In other words, we don't, we don't want to separate these two things, spirit and truth. Well, I was worshiping in spirit, but I don't, there wasn't much truth. Well, I was worshiping in truth, but there wasn't much spirit. I didn't feel... No, we, we don't separate those. That's not what he's doing here. These are, these are united in concept. And so we'll kind of look at that. The first phrase he uses is he, true worshipers worship God in spirit. And I think, what is he talking about here? I think this is that true internal response of faith. This is, this is coming from within. This is coming from who you are. And, and by the way, this requires no building, temple or church. It requires no priesthood. It requires no stained glass windows. It requires no candles, no pews, no other human being. And by the way, it doesn't even include or require a guitar or a piano, okay? And it doesn't require a hymn book, and it doesn't require words up on the screen, and it doesn't require the piano on the left side of the auditorium or the right side of the auditorium, drums or no drums. I mean, why does this stuff distract us? I mean, we are, we are given the truth here in John chapter four of what God is looking for. 
and we'll do anything else than that. Doesn't that blow your mind? That blows my mind. That was heavily convicting this week personally. Because we always think, not always, that's an overstatement. My poor wife, she has to deal with me all the time. That's an overstatement. But we often get distracted by externals, even when we know we shouldn't be distracted by externals. Wow, it's just incredible. God's looking for a certain type of worshiper, and it's found right here in John chapter 4. One who worships him in spirit and in truth. And by the way, you know why you can worship him in spirit and in truth? You know why the way has been cleared for that? Because you were born dead spiritually in trespasses and sins. And when you trusted in Christ, God made you alive together with Christ. And now you've got the ability to actually do what we're reading about in John chapter 4. To worship God in a way that he is pleased. Have you ever just woken up one day and say, Lord, I just want to live today to please you. Well, here you, here you go. Here's an opportunity. This can happen in your car on the way to work. This can happen on your car on your way home from work. This can happen anywhere that your two feet touch this earth or your back if you're laying down. It doesn't, your feet don't have to be on the earth, right? Anywhere that you exist, you can worship in this way, in spirit and in truth, because it's coming from internally. This in truth reflects a grounded, non-ecstatic worship that becomes mystical and feelings-oriented. It's not that true worship can't or will not elicit strong emotions. It can It's just saying that we're not looking for that as a measurement of whether or not we're worshiping. That's not how you define it. It's through emotions. It's just saying that true God-honoring worship, not how I feel. We got to get that out of our thinking. Well, I just didn't feel it today in worship. I just didn't feel it today in that church. I I just didn't feel. I just didn't. You're worshiping your feelings when you talk that way. You're just exposing incorrect, non-biblical thinking. You tell me in that passage where God is looking for true worshipers that experience emotion every time they're involved in a Bible study or in a worship situation with music. It doesn't say that at all. That's not even the issue. To read that in the text, I mean, could you imagine a a modern-day churchgoer sitting at the well trying to help Jesus explain this to the woman? It's like, yeah, you know, like with the guitar and the (laughs) piano. And she's like, what? What are you talking about? This is so foreign to the concept And yet, every time we hear worship, what do we think of? That's exactly what we think of. The emotional butterflies that we feel when we hear a certain song. That's totally fine. Enjoy your emotional butterflies. Just don't worship your emotional butterflies. Worship the God of truth. The songs, the teaching, they're all designed to point your eyes heavenward to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you respond internally to that. That's what worshiping in spirit and in truth is. And we get so distracted from worshiping the person of God by worshiping all these false concepts of what worship is. It is mind-boggling. And I, trust me, I'm with you. If you're feeling like, man, I do that too, I, I do that too. We need encouragement. We need reminders of these things. And you know, as in the case of the Samaritan woman, truth must include all of God's revelation, not just the the parts we like. The older I get, the more I I meet believers who are passionate about certain truths, and that becomes their hobby horse. And they act like there's no other part of the Word of God except this doctrine or this doctrine or this doctrine. We have 66 books the last time I checked. And the doctrine that you have a hobby horse on or that I might have a hobby horse on, I guarantee is not in all 66 books. I guarantee We need to lift our eyes to the Lord. We need to become the worshipers that he desires. Not what makes us feel good, not what revs us up, not what gets us up in the morning for this one hobby horse doctrine that we see every passage in the Bible through that lens. But the entire truth of the word of God, this is what God is seeking. This is the type of worshiper that God is pleased with. And we need to just be reminded and challenged in this way. In fact, it says the father's seeking this type of worship. He's striving after. It's present tense. It's urgent. It's immediate. This is right now on God's agenda list as he looks down from heaven, the triune Godhead, by the way, 
I'm looking for this person who will worship me in spirit and truth. And it's so interesting because the word typically seeking after is used of humans seeking after God with their whole heart in the, in the scriptures. This is the exact opposite direction. This is God pursuing you. Pursuing you so that you would worship him in a way that pleases him. Isn't that incredible? The, the mind... I, I mean, I, I, I'm just running out of superlatives uh, over the years to describe God. He's just mind-blowing that he cares that much, that he's interested that much, that that's what he's seeking. And here we are getting sidetracked on certain things, and we're missing the whole point of what he wants. It's amazing how easily we get sidetracked. It's just very amazing. The very fact that God is seeking so hard after these types of worshipers should tell us what? They're hard to find. This isn't your run-of-the-mill average worshiper. This is someone that, that is unique, that gets it, that gets that Christianity, the Christian life, worship of God is all about relational intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Relational intimacy, leading us heavenward, occupied with him, him changing us into his image as we simply behold him. Second Corinthians 3.18. That's the message of the word of God. One of the worst distractions, as I've said before, is religion. Religious external rites have done a number in this area. You know, we observe what I would call religious rites in this church. Baptism, we mentioned it earlier, communion. But those two elements are designed to do what? Point us to a spiritual truth and a person behind that spiritual truth. Not just to do it in and of themselves, And that's what religion often does. It puts up these external things that if we're not careful, they become the things that we worship. We start worshiping baptism. We start worshiping a certain type of service. We start worshiping all sorts of different things because it becomes distracting. We just easily get distracted. I think Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman, if you truly want to worship God, you're not going to be distracted by externals. That's not where your distraction is going to be. He wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, as we go to verse 24, Jesus gives a very quick theology lesson. We're going to kind of move quickly through this. God is spirit, he says. Um, He's describing the entire God, and he uses the word theos here. And this is, by the way, what makes Jesus's incarnation so unique. It's the first time in history of, of the world that one of the members of the Godhead took upon himself a real human body, and he remains in a real human body to this day. It's just a glorified body now following his resurrection, but that's what makes his incarnation so unique. So since God is spirit, we know a few things about him. He didn't become spirit. He's always been spirit. This is who he is, and this is his makeup. He doesn't have a body outside of the unique son of God. Again, unique in time and space history. He doesn't have a body that kind of shoots Mormonism and other religions that hold that God once had a body out of the water. This is not what it's teaching here, that he is spirit. And he's not hung up on external rituals the way man is. He's more interested in what's going on under the hood, not in this physical body, not in the shell. And that kind of gives us some indications there. In fact, this very system, the Jewish system of worship, with all of these religious external rites were designed to point them to a loving Heavenly Father, and a loving Savior who was to come, not become this external distraction. And so Jesus is now done speaking, and now we get her response. And you can see she, she's feeling the pressure. Jesus is pushing toward a decision. Watch her kick the can down the road a little bit here. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Yeah, talk about a mic drop moment. I, I would have loved to have been there to see this. But she kicks the can down the road. She's like, okay, you're making some good points. But, you know, when Messiah comes, then I'll, then I'll make a decision. Then I'll respond to, to what he has to say. And so he's pushing her toward a response. She won't give him one. One of the things that she says is, is I know. She uses, uh, again, a perfect tense. I, I know intuitively that one day, far out there, the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And the implication is what? When he comes, I'll believe it. When he he comes, whatever he says, I'll definitely believe what he says. You're making some good points, but I'm just going to wait for the Messiah. Again, 
I think what she's expecting him here to say is, okay, well, nice talking to you. Would you please consider what we talked about? Have a nice day, right? I think that's what she's expecting him to say. She's, she's now effectively stiff-armed him in every way she can think possible. She doesn't really know what to say <laughs> to what he says next. Uh, she's, she's mind blown. Uh, in fact, we're going to see that the conversation is interrupted right after he drops this truth bomb on her. We'll see that next week. But this comment that she gives was designed to stop the conversation, it, but it didn't. It just expanded her mind. And let's look at this. This is very uh, important because Jesus is telling her the very one that you're looking forward to in the future is the very one that's standing in front of you right now. And just to hear that, the, the words hit the air must have just been like, what? <laughs> what is he saying here? In fact, what's really fascinating, if you go to your, your translation, and I know I'm, if you're looking at your watch, I'm moving. We're getting done here. But if you look at your translation, you're going to notice that he is italicized. And what that tells us, it was added for translational clarity, okay? In other words, it's not found in the Greek text. It's not in, in the underlying Greek manuscript. It is added for translational clarity because it would sound a little weird to the English speaker. I, I who speak to you am. All right, we would be like, that's a little weird. Unless we understand what I believe Jesus is saying, he uses this Greek phrase. It's, it's two words that he's going to use throughout the book of John. And maybe some of you have heard this before. It's ego, not lego my egos, but ego, a me, which literally translated is I am, I am. He, 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 it's redundant for a reason. The same exact Greek phrase, ego, a me, is the same exact Greek phrase used to translate the Hebrew word, Aye, found in Exodus 3.14. And if you remember Exodus 3.14, I'm going to pull it up here in 15. I want you to see what it says here. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Ego, a me in the Greek. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. In fact, when you see that word Lord in the Old Testament there, all caps, it's Yahweh. This is Yahweh's name, Ego a me, I am that I am. And by the way, what part of the Bible does this come from? What kind of part of the Old Testament? The very part that the Samaritans accepted. Jesus is identifying what's going on here. So not only is he claiming that he's the Messiah, but he's emphatically claiming that he's God, that he's Yahweh. And so you can see this is a mind-blowing moment. Conversation gets interrupted next week, and we'll see what happens from there. Let's close there with the word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would just use it, um, just use it in our lives, Lord, for your glory and reorient our thinking so that we, each one in this room and each one listening becomes a true worshiper, one that honors and glorifies you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.